Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Rebecca. And this is Full Plate, Full Cup. We're startup leaders turned executive coaches who believe that you deserve to be wildly successful and wildly happy. We interview trailblazing entrepreneurs, business leaders, and creatives so you can peek behind the curtain of how they got where they are today and start carving your own path towards success. Each episode shares personal stories as well as actionable takeaways that you can apply to begin living a more joyful and fulfilling life. Join us to learn how to scale your business, harness your power, and fill your cup. If you like what you hear, subscribe, leave a review, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Hello, and welcome back to the Full Plate, Full Cup podcast. Today, we have Madison Utendahl, who is such an incredible visionary and creative and someone that I had the pleasure to meet in person before we are recording together <laughs> live. Madison, thank you so much for joining us. I'm having me excited to be here. Oh, and Madison and I have a lot of other things in common that we are so excited to talk about. But before we dive in, let me read her illustrious bio. So Madison Utendahl is a multi-hyphenate. She is the founder of Utendahl Creative, a writer, public speaker, Forbes 30 Under 30, an Adweek Creative 100 recipient, and a two-time Webby Award winner. Prior to Utendahl Creative, Madison has been on the founding teams of Cultural Phenomenons, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Refinery 29's 29 Rooms, and the Museum of Ice Cream. While the experience of being behind the scenes of these massive cultural successes led to specialty and expertise in emotional brand storytelling, it also led to Madison's firsthand experience with burnout. Since then, she not only discovered the power of authenticity and self-worth within the workplace on an individual level, but is fundamentally changing the way creatives work via leadership and policy at her agency. Madison has been invited to speak at Inbound, VidCon, Yelp's Women in Business Summit, and many more. When Madison is not playing boss at Utendahl Creative, she can be found as an on-camera video host and creator at The Elephant and Her Name Is. Madison lives in New York City and is a proud third-generation New Yorker. Madison, I'm so, so excited to have you here. It was the first time I've heard my bio read out loud, so thank you. How does it feel? I feel like, yes. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I, there's, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a Virgo rising, so there's part of me that was like, okay, they need to take some of the sentences out. But outside of that, I thought it was great. <laughs> I, was like, yeah. I, I am also a Virgo <laughs> rising, not surprising at all. Um, and for me, I'm just like, oh, this is just such boss energy. And I actually like it when when a woman has a nice long bio. You know, it's like, I don't need to keep my my bio short for you. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you all the important things that have, have occurred. Um, it's such, such a good point. Yeah, and I, I, that was actually part of my thinking too, was like, what is it as you're reading it? I was like, okay, what does it mean to actually listen? Mm, yeah. And receive this by because at first I was like, oh God, oh God. And I'm like, no, what just just listen. Yeah. Just listen, receive and listen. Yeah. And it's such a perfect interlude into the first thing that I wanted to ask you was just about what an incredible career that you've had already at such a young age. I mean, you've been a part of so many cool businesses. You run your own business now. But I'd love to go back to high school Madison or college age Madison. What gave you the drive to just really hit the ground running straight from graduation or perhaps even before graduation? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and I give this advice actually to, I talk to, a, some, sometimes I'll meet with a high schooler and a college kid and they have this like really clear plan. 
<laughs> and I'm like, no, no, no. If you can like use this time to really be lost and curious and to explore. And I would say that like, I say this in a very, I was a very like lost high schooler, very rebellious, uh, super anti-authority, was a great student. And so that used to drive my teachers crazy because I was like a straight A student, but like would skip class. So they'd be like, <laughs> oh, you know, zero in participation, <laughs> but like A, A in the work itself. So it was really agonizing for my professors. And I had the same energy when I got to college. Um, but I was, I channeled being lost and, and I say lost in a positive way. I was just so unsure of who I was and what I wanted to do. And so I took a lot of time to experiment and was quick to apply for an internship, try it for a summer and be like, mm, I don't want to do this. Took that time. And so by the time I graduated from college, I had been an intern in casting for film and TV. I was a fashion intern one summer at Nylon. I had interned at a real estate private equity company. Like, I mean, I really was constantly figuring it out. My parents were like, why are you working this much? Just like be a student. And I was like, I just want to, I don't know what I want to do with my life. And Brown, especially like was very conducive to that exploration because it yeah. allows you to figure it out. So by the time I graduated from college, I was like, I know what I want to do. And I think that's the energy. I encourage that energy in a lot of young people. It's just like, no one is expecting you to know what you want to do at 19. So don't try to like convince anyone that you've got like, don't, why don't, don't bother. No one's like a 19 year old has their shit together. So explore, be lost. Yeah. Sorry. And I'm curious, you know, when you say um, by the time you graduated, you sort of knew what you wanted to do. Some people still, like whether you're 19, 35, 42, you know, they still don't necessarily know what that feels like. So I'm curious yeah. for you, what was, if there was like a moment or a project or a particular boss you were working for yeah. or something that was like, ooh, this feels like this yeah. has like charge to it. It feels like something I want to devote my, you know, life to, or at least some of my life to. Yeah, yeah. I took a class in college called Bad in a Good Way. Mm. And it was great. It basically uh, unpacked, it was a film class, unpacked all of these films that like were maybe considered to be terrible, but were so profound um, in changing culture, changing our awareness, you know, everything from uh, a documentary called Night and Fog that's quite relevant to right now um, to like a John Waters film that was so grotesque uh -huh. and like unbearable to watch. But it just gave me this appetite for storytelling and appetite for film in particular, specifically documentary. And I became absorbed in the world of documentary. And that's what like I left college being like, I want to work in film. I'm going to be a documentarian or I'm going to work in news journalism. And I very much continued on that path for years. I p ended up taking a hard pivot, but I'm was I ironic is I'm actually finding myself back to that again. Yeah. Which is where that was the energy I had when I graduated. And it was from this one class that like, excuse my language, but just like, fuck me up. You know what yeah, I mean? Totally. <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah. yeah. I went into Brown thinking I was going to like be in economics and work for the UN. I had like high aspirations to uh, be an ambassador or a diplomat, like really wanted to change the world in that capacity. And then getting introduced to doc filmmaking 
made me really realize I could still change the world, but I could change the world in a way that was more creative, had more narratives associated to it, gave me more of an opportunity to like explore. Yeah. That pivot was massive for me. Massive. Yeah. At Full Plate, Full Cup, we call it a soul ping. When you have one of those things that sort of fucks you up, right? Where you're like, oh my God, this thing. And, you know, a common thread with, with, with Rebecca and I, but also with a lot of our guests is that like, whatever that thing was, like it might leave, but it always comes back, right? It's like this, it's this thing that's just like dancing around your soul and maybe through your whole life, you know, maybe like at some point you're just watching documentary films and it's not like a a, a, a vocational pursuit, but it's still yeah. something that that communicates with you in a really deep way like that. Oh, totally. I mean, I my sister and I always joke that like if we were to ever win the lotto, that's like literally what we would do is stock, oh. like just like invest in everyone's doc yeah. film. Oh like, my they're, gosh. They're expensive. And yeah. Your return, right? So yeah. I entered an era of like people loving docs and going to watch them, and yeah. people should care. But they're still not, you know. We st- Hollywood's money driven, right? It's yeah, old- it ain't Marvel. <laughs> no, it ain't Marvel. <laughs> really un- underfunded. Yeah. Well, you are now the founder and CEO of an eponymous creative agency, and I'm curious, what was the spark? Because uh, a lot of people obviously dream of, you know, starting their own business, being their own boss. But what was the spark for you that said, like, okay, I'm ready to start my own thing. I've done these cool things, but I'm ready to be, you know, the boss. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This is not my language. My um, dad's very good friend, Len Coleman, who's a legend in and of himself, says this, but I stumbled up into this opportunity. And that's his phrase that I love. And I think is like, I, I mean, he says two things. He says, always be in position to stumble up. And that's how I feel about the creative agency that I started. I was consulting and I was finding my way as a consultant. I had finally reached this place where I really feel like I got the hang of consulting. I had gone to a rhythm of establishing a project, running it for three months, finding new ones. And then I realized that I got an opportunity to take on a bigger project that really required more people attached. And so I started to reach out to colleagues, friends of mine who had the skills that I did not have to help me complete this project. Before I knew it, we were doing another project together. And then it became three of us and it was another project and it slowly formed into an agency versus me and freelancers. But I stumbled up into it. It was an opportunity that presented itself. I didn't really know what to make of it, but rather than saying, no, I'm not ready. I said, yes, and I'll figure it out. And so that's why that phrase to me is so important. And I think structurally, you know, society tells women they have to have it all together before they make these big decisions. But if we can wrap our heads around stumbling up and just recognizing that we might not have it all together, but we're going to stumble into this position and we're going to be positive and it's gonna, it will work out. Um, yeah. And that's the honest answer of starting yeah. my business. And I yeah. think sometimes people want to know that I had this business plan and had investors. I'm like, no, I like had the opportunity to come in front of me. And I said, yeah, sure. Fuck it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sure. Fuck it. That is like, <laughs> that is the best advice for starting a business because, you know, there, there's obviously businesses that are very capital intensive and you need like certain things to start before a lot of people listening that maybe have, you know, an inclination that something could be an opportunity for them. Uh, I always talk about like, you don't have to jump off the cliff. It doesn't have to be like this all or nothing thing where you're like, okay, quitting my job, putting my life savings into this thing. No, you start, you see if you get clients, you see if you yeah. get more clients, you see if yeah. people want to work with you, right? Yeah. And those stories are so, you know, we glorify those stories, but we also don't often talk about that 
95% of those stories don't work out, yeah. right? We focus on the 5% of people that put their, you know, took out, you know, basically sold their home or borrowed against their mortgage and did all these crazy things to start their business and became billionaires. And like, that's great. And that's an amazing dream that we all should aspire towards, you know, for everyone. Right. But it's also a huge risk. Yeah. More than it just feels like personal failure. Right. But people have families, you have lives, you have responsibilities. And so I'm with you. I actually listened to your episode with Sophie and Active Ingredient when you talked yeah. about that. And I think that's such a good point. It's like, you don't have to do it all at once. Yeah. And sure, it might mean a commitment that people are not ready for or don't necessarily want. It might mean waking up at six yeah. or coming home from work and working at seven, eight, nine and missing out on a dinner and doing these things that are going to take away from your personal time. But if you can wrap your head around that being temporary, yeah, right, working towards a really awesome end goal. Yeah then those sacrifices are worth it. Yeah. Well, speaking of sacrifices, I have some fun questions I want to ask you about yeah. the agency itself and being an agency owner, but I'm sure, um, you know, along the way there were growing pains or challenges just in terms of going from sort of, uh, the, the, the freelancer, you know, the consultant taking gigs to being like, no, 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 this is a business and I'm the boss of it. Mm. Um, what, would be maybe just one piece of advice you have for someone who is in the maybe uh, mid middle or later stages of like becoming a business owner or, a, you know, a, yeah. a founder. Um, what, what have you learned that you'd love for them to kind of take away from this episode? Um, that you don't starting a business doesn't mean you have to commit to doing it forever. Mm. And we often have the analogy of like starting your business is like having a baby. And I'm like, well, no, because being, having a baby is a, is a lifelong commitment. If you're so fortunate, <laughs> thing happens to your child, you parent <laughs> that child until you pass, right? Let's, my parents are still parenting me and I'm 30. <laughs> I, I still call my dad her advice. But it, like your business is not that, like you can actually start something and not do it forever. Totally. Totally. And yeah. I think it kind of shocks people that I say, I don't know if I'll be doing my business in five years. They're like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, well, what if I decide I don't want to do this anymore? And so yeah. if you're in the mid phase and you might be like nervous, taking that huge gulp of like, I'm making a life commitment. My best advice is, is accepting that you're actually not making a life commitment. You're making a commitment for however long you're still in values alignment with this business you're about to start. Yeah. And if you can allow yourself to recognize that, like, it's okay if it actually doesn't work out or if you choose to not do it anymore, but just do it now. Totally. And think about it in the present versus future or past, then I think it's a lot easier to step into the opportunity. So that's like the best advice I can give for a mid level person is, and that's something I struggled with, which is why I feel I say I stumbled up. I didn't create the business plan and have this whole idea to start a creative agency because I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do that forever. Yeah. And then once I realized, like, wait, I don't have to do this forever. Why don't I just figure this out and see how it goes? Yeah. It's given me a lot more freedom to also accept that, like, and this is working right now. It might not work in a couple of years from now. It might not work a year from now. Does yeah. it mean I failed if it right. doesn't? No. Right. And it might be doing great and not work for you, right? Like as you're, I feel like, yeah, like the way yes. I change every two years. 
Yes. Yes. <laughs> not my commitment to anything. I mean, I have kids. They're not going anywhere, but my right. 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 Yeah. I, I listened to um this is years ago. Uh what's it called? Uh how I built this with the guy who started Venmo. Mm. Old Venmo and this number, don't quote me on this number, but honestly, he sold Venmo for 300 million to PayPal. And now it's obviously has, you know, a bajillion dollar valuation. And people are, will say to him, like, oh my God, like if you just held on. You could be a billionaire. And he's, his response was like, wait a minute. I walked away with $300 million. Like, I'm good. <laughs> why did I need to hold on to this to be like, why can't you just be happy for the decision I made? Yeah. He's like, I sold Venmo when it was no longer serving me anymore. And I just didn't feel like continuing on. I would still say I like did pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. People totally. have He's like, it happens all the time. People just like cannot help but bring up to him that if he had held on, he could have sold it for a billion. I know. He's suffering with those $300 million. I'm sure. Oh, it just must God, be so God. tough. God. How do you even live like that? <laughs> I just, I'll never forget listening to that episode because it's true. It's like, what does it mean to just let go of something you've built when it's just the time for you to let go of it? Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Well, I love that from a spiritual sense because it's all about impermanence, right? Like everything, you know, if there's one thing that is constant in this world, it's impermanence. As soon as you love something, it's going to change. As soon as you hate something, it's going to change, right? That's just, that's just life. And so um, what's interesting, kind of on the flip side, you refer to your agency as anti-trend. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, I'd love to hear kind of your definition of that because, we live in such a trend obsessed world with social media, um, you know, the, the uh, tendency for people to want to jump on everything and always yeah. be onto the next and onto the next, onto the next. So talk to me about what it means to be an anti-trend agency and how that philosophy sort of bakes into the work that you do for your clients. Yeah. Great question. I identify anti-trend as, um, empowering the brands that we build to be to, to go within versus look externally. And so the way I look at trends, and I'm also speaking to it through the lens and the construct of time frames within branding, which is long lead times, right? You are creating a brand and it takes months for that brand's packaging to be produced and to go into production and launch. So when people adopt these trends in branding, by the time you release your product, the trend is over. It's chuggy, right? <laughs> you spent all of this money trying to adopt a trend that is in current in the current zeitgeist when we're building this brand. But if you're not launching until eight months from now, I'm honest with my clients, you're literally wasting your money building your brand off of what is current in this moment. Because yeah. social media has really, really changed that lifespan of a trend. It's so fleeting. It's so quick. And the only thing that you can really do as a brand now is adopt trends through marketing. But as a, like in your identity, your logo, your, that's, that is way more permanent, right? That's really going to be what attracts your audience. So we just don't believe in building brands of what's based in the moment. And I think the other thing is that we, we really do subscribe to using data to help inform creative decisions. So we like to operate, we say that like we do our best to let go of our egos because most creative agencies have this like creative director who's like the genius <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, what, what, what Jean-Pierre says, you know, and it's, and, but that's one person's opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And like, so we look at data, we go, we look at qualitative and quantitative data, use that as a guiding reference to 
inform our strategy, and then from that strategy, apply our subjective opinion to create the creative result. So we're really taking a formulaic approach to branding in a way that a lot of agencies don't. Yeah. Um, a quote that I read of yours is that, or maybe this is not a quote, a saying that stories are data with a soul. Yeah. I, I want to hear about this because we recommend when we're coaching or when we're like leading teams, we always recommend that people apply a data-driven approach to their life by yeah. kind of using self-awareness, mm-hmm. journaling, et cetera, to really get clear on like the data that's being presented that you might not notice, right? That, yeah. oh, this food makes me tired or like this person, I my stress peaks, right? Yeah. Talk to me about how stories are data with a soul because this is yes. a brilliant line. So that's actually, it's a Brene Brown line that I swear by. Um, And she, the context to which I learned about it through her was that when people think of her as a behavioral scientist, they're always like, how do you measure what you do? Right. Mm -hmm. You don't have necessarily like numbers attached. She's not in a lab. She's not performing chemistry or biology. And so there's a lot of confusion on how she is using data to inform the books that she's writing and the speeches that she's giving. And so she always says that stories are data with the soul, that like data is a cumulative also of what we hear and live and feel mm. and experience. That is the soul of the qual- mostly qualitative data that she is creating in her work. And I really believe in that because, I, but I look through like the lens of who says that my experience or your experience or this person's experience cannot be turned into resourceful data for somebody. Totally. If it's rooted in truth, right? Yeah. And fabricated, it's not an exaggeration. Why is my story not data for you? Why is your story not data for me? It should, if anything, inform me and educate me and inspire me or derail me, whatever it ends up doing. But we should look at each other as data in a way that, I mean... One, it can depersonalize how we see people and, and see experiences and that could be harmful. And another way, it can be incredibly validating. Yeah. Reassuring, a reminder, all the things that, you know, are more in the positive lens. Yeah, I see it actually as like super unifying, um, you know, in in the sense that like that's how movements get started, yeah. right? You know, even like, I mean, now there's a lot of of movements in the wellness industry that I feel got like oversubscribed to and like played out, right? And now they've become almost like status symbols or um, like a, just another like box to check. But a lot of the things, you know, when it comes to, I don't know, self-care and um, mental health, right? Like loneliness, all of the stories of people's loneliness coming together as like one shared story is like, wow, we have a loneliness epidemic. Now we we could use those stories as data to do something about a a shared experience. Yeah. And I think it's, I love that point of that it is really unifying. And I think it's also incredibly important in the day and age we're living in. Um, I'm running the marathon on Sunday in New York. Yeah. And I've been thinking a lot about this stories, you know, um, or data with the soul because we're living in this day and age where we're all very divided, right? Super divisive nuance has been lost in the experiences that we're all having. It's either this, this, or that. But if I think about the marathon and not to geek out, but I will anyways, because it's with you. Technically the data is, is that young, old, big, small, black, white, brown, Asian, no matter what you are, is coming together using our abled or disabled bodies to complete a 26.2 mile race. Mm. That from a data perspective tells me all of these people with different lived experiences are completing and marching towards the same goal, which means we are unified people. Yeah. We're not that different. 
because yeah. if all of us from these different life experiences can come together to achieve the same goal, well, fuck, goddamn, there must be some similarities there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's no. not a small impulse that drives no. a human being to decide to do something like a marathon. So that's like a nice chunk of shared humanity. A nice chunk of data. A yeah. nice chunk of shared humanity. And you know, I'm I'm hoping that brings awareness to people when we think about these what we consider to be differences. Yeah. If you look at this data. We're really, and that, yeah, okay, like, you know, colors of the rainbow, kumbaya, but that's, yeah, sure, that's the really reductive way to, to, to ride off what I'm saying. But if you, again, this is where data has not, you can't refute it. Like, what does the data say? Yeah. Draws the yeah. same conclusion. Yeah. I love that so much. And I didn't know it was Brene. I was going to credit it to you. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, oh God, I can't, I can't have Brene's legal team coming up. <laughs> no, I don't want to come from me either. Um, <laughs> well, when you and I met, it was so fun. We, um, For those listening, we were seated next to each other at a dinner party that was hosted by Julianne Fraser, who is a mutual yeah. friend of ours. And she uh, recently uh, recorded for this podcast as well. Her episode hasn't come out yet. But um, we started talking about your agency and how you lead your team and specifically how you manage people's output, their burnout, kind of taking care of your team. And of course, me, I'm like, oh, she's talking about taking care of her team and not letting people burn out. Oh my God, like soul sister. Um, because agency life, I mean, you know, agency life is not that other things aren't grueling, but I know, you know, when I was interviewing people to hire them for roles, if someone came from the agency world, we we're like, whoa, well, this is going to be an improvement for that. Cause you know, she's yeah, been yeah. grinding and you know, she's yeah. been abused. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> I would love to hear a, like, a couple of more, you know, maybe a little bit of the philosophy, but more of like the nuts and bolts of how you do it, because there are certainly bosses out there that I've worked with, that I've coached, who don't believe that it is necessarily possible to run a successful business. It's like you're either like working people like, you know, nose to the grindstone, or you're like, oh, everybody gets self-care days. And it's like yeah. loosey-goosey, right? So talk to me about how you do it. Yeah. Great question. Well, I mean, the Asian, the traditional agency model is all in service of the client, right? That is, you are in a service-based in industry and you do whatever it takes for the needs of your client. And I actually believe that it's a 50-50. So we, we say no as much as people say no to us. And I think that fundamental shift in perspective and autonomy as a team gives people a greater sense of self-commitment, desire. They know that if they feel personally that that founder or that message is not in values alignment. They can speak up. We draw a consensus as a team and I have no problem in saying no. So that is a fundamental shift. And I've spent, I worked in agency life and got assigned clients that were, I personally felt were morally corrupt <laughs> and the world found out later on, but I had no agency at all to speak up, to share that, because I knew it didn't matter. We were in the service industry and we were going to take on that client as long as they paid the bill. Yeah. So our fundamental shift is it's a 50-50 relationship, takes two to tango and they can say no and we can say no. And that becomes part of the onboarding process and, and educating people on they have a voice within the business. Structurally though, the idea of like what is successful as an agency is also, in my opinion, an archaic model. It was very much designed around uh, 
a competition and who had the biggest campaign and made the most money. But success was also very much designed for the patriarchy. It was all male environments. Women were always in junior positions. And so we're the foundation of what a successful agency looks like doesn't have women in senior leadership, mm-hmm. doesn't have female brands. Like we're not a part of that narrative. So for us, it's also a shift in that we are a, less than 1% of creative agencies are owned by women. That is insane. Insane. And it gets, and then if you look within the eight current agency landscape of the 99% of agencies, only 29% of senior leadership are women, but then 55% of people who graduate in marketing and creative are women from college. So we're empowering women to be creative and to get degrees in marketing and creative. And then we're not promoting them. We're not giving them autonomy to become a director and executive. And then we're not empowering them or giving them the money to start their own businesses within the creative agency landscape. So fundamentally, I think a lot of like where the like retention, the rah, rah, like the commitment to the business comes from is in challenging these huge, ginormous mountains of what is success. Yeah. The other reality is that um, I know I'm not a good boss if I'm burnt out. Mm. And I have learned the hard way. And I have also worked for people who were so severely burnt out and they were terrible to me. Yeah. I know that like ultimately allowing for burnout to happen does not lead to a happy work environment. No. Scales of burnout. And I believe that like you can be 3%, 10%, 20% burned out and then 100%. And it's a natural human experience. Like I'm burned out by the world right now. (laughs) Yeah, like definitely. I'm probably like a four out of 10, right? Yeah scale. But we've also created a system that challenges how the American work system works, right? Which is we 9 a.m. meetings are not allowed. There's no meetings at 9 a.m. allowed in the business. I do not care where, I mean, we all have to be in like total consensus for whatever extreme reason. Yeah. But we create rules that protect people's time so that when they're working, they're working. When they're not working, they're not working. So Mondays, no meetings before 12. Fridays, no meetings after two. I mean, these feel like very simple changes that businesses can make that would radically change the mindset of their team, but they won't do. Yeah, radically change. And one thing that I I know you and I get it, but I just want to point out something that you said that not everybody who's not like a burnout scholar like you and I (laughs) would get. But the first point that you made about your team having autonomy with clients and decision-making, a lot of people think that burnout is just from uh, working too hard, working too many hours, uh, you know, like, like like an output thing. But a lot of times burnout is actually caused by a a misuse of energy when you feel powerless and it puts you into this very um, almost like Uh, agitated but hopeless state, which is a nervous system, you know, a nervous system response to feeling like you have no power over choices that you're making, over how you work. So there, if you are, if you're, if you are listening and you have any, you know, you manage one person, you manage 5,000 people, or you are an employee yourself, it's to know that, hmm, even if you're working like a pretty sane 40 hour week, feeling like you're constantly beating your head against the wall because you have no autonomy and you have no power is also going to contribute to burnout. It's not just output. And for the employer, do not hire someone that you don't believe can be autonomous. 
Yeah. That is the other reality here, right? It's like, why are you hiring someone that you know you're going to need to micromanage? The time that it might take to continue your job search to find that person, sure, it is tedious. Actually, I will be honest and go on the record saying I hate the hiring process. I hate interviewing a million people. Like it's my least favorite thing because I'm always exhausted. I use so much energy in my yeah. interview, something I have to work on. But don't hire somebody that doesn't have that skill. And if yeah. you do hire someone that has that skill, radically trust that they're fully capable. Oh, you know, and yes. it's a it's an employer and an employee. Yeah. Responsibility. Yeah. One hundred percent. And it's something that I think um, it's never done. It's not like a thing that you like figure out and you're done. You have to like it's like a it's like a marriage. You have yeah. to recommit to the terms of the employee employer yeah. relationship. You have to invite candor into the conversation because yeah. slipping into micromanaging, I think, happens to most bosses, even amazing, you know, thoughtful, empath empathic bosses, right? There might be one thing that you are obsessed with and you're going to be up people's asses about it. And they have to be like, hey, boss, remember, like, I got this. Like, I'll come to you when it's at the one yard line. You don't need to be involved right now. Right. And you need to be able to receive that feedback and say, oh, you know what? I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that person. Okay. 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 Right. And the other reality is, is if you need to check somebody every two seconds to see their work, guess what? They're not going to complete the work because they know you're going to have to check it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's such a vicious cycle. And I, I really hope a lot of people managers are listening to this and taking yeah. notes. Um, I would say it's like one thing for people managers as well is I found, and I hear this with a lot of our clients, it's like there's a lot of like forced self-care time <laughs> in companies with the best of intentions, right? I think when they like, but I worked for a company that required we ate lunch as a team, no phones. And I remember being like, I curse a lot. Sorry, I'm born and raised in New York. Me too. Here. Yeah. I was like, I don't want to fucking have lunch with these people. Like this is my one hour yeah. of the day that if I want to go sit at Sweetgreen or at that coffee shop and talk to not a soul, I mean, literally like, do the mobile order and be mute, <laughs> pick it up and sit down. I need to be given the opportunity to do that. Yeah. So while I do believe that employer at the time had the best of intentions. We are going to have a phoneless free lunch. We're going to get it catered. It was so prescribed, this self-care, the, the healthy wellness moment that it became unenjoyable. Yeah became actually the last thing people wanted to do with their one hour that they have of a day. This is when we're in the office five days a week. That one hour was precious goods. Yeah. You know? Forced together lunch. Like I might quit, honestly, because oh, I, I, <laughs> we would have gotten along in high school because I hate being told what to do. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I ended up quitting. And this was where I also used to like put fake doctor's appointments on my calendar so I could work out. Yeah. Oh, that. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> most people listening have heard my burnout story, which was at my first job when I was working at Tao Group, which was the every 20 somethings kind of dream job. Right. right? right. Um, and you and I were talking earlier about your burnout experience, which is not like, I mean, they're, all of our experiences are unique in their own way, but they have a lot of similarities. So I'd love if you feel comfortable to share, you know, about, about your, um, your extreme burnout experience. Yeah. I mean, I will, I start when every time I talk about this, I, I say the same thing, which is like, it takes 50% is the environment and the employer and 50% is yourself. Yeah. And I think it's 
a really hard thing to accept, especially if that 50% in your employer is abusive, right? And you're tolerating a lot of really manipulative, toxic behavior that deserves to be acknowledged. The other reality is that there are things that we all could be doing in those environments, even if your self-esteem is shit. And I know, I know all the things I was there, but my burnout journey, I was working at Museum of Ice Cream and it was a quote unquote rocket ship. And everyone in the world was talking about it, billions of impressions, but the environment was not conducive to me as a human. That's the simplest way to put it. We were in the office at 8 a.m. We were out of the office at 9 p.m. We had the scheduled lunches for the wellness lunches. It was this, we are a family energy and I am actually naturally an introvert. I do not get my energy from other people. So to have no morning time, no evening time, no lunch time, and then be pressured by the world and the company structure to perform and be the best, I severely burnt out. And I was hospitalized three times for having pancreatitis and no one could figure out what it was. I was stressed beyond belief and I don't believe the environment was conducive to a healthy workplace. And they've had to do a lot of work and they've had to do a lot of self-awareness and have done a great job, I think, in, in coming to that, that understanding. The other reality of my burnout story is that what was I also doing? I slept with my phone in my bed. I had Slack notifications on. I did not meditate. I woke up, had a double espresso, took my dog on a walk, and then went straight to SoulCycle and Barry's boot camp. Ran from Barry's boot camp or SoulCycle to the office. Didn't take a moment outside and like decompress, look at the sky, nothing. Boom, 12 hours straight. I am also responsible for part of that journey. But it got to a place where my burnout was so severe that I had a doctor, my doctor after my third hospitalization said to me, you might think I'm a terrible doctor, but there's literally nothing wrong with you. <laughs> it's like, we've done an endoscopy. We have changed your diet. We have put you on all this medication, digestive enzymes, and nothing is working. You're not telling me though, that you're ready to leave your job. Are you ready to change your relationship to how you're living? He's like, I only know what you tell me. And I think you're only telling me like 25% of the truth. And I left the office exactly as he said I would. That's not a good doctor. How could he not find this? There's something so wrong with me. And I called my mom and my mom said to me, she was like, you know what? Just because that company operates that way doesn't mean you have to stay there. She's like, it seems like it's working for everyone else. So it really falls on you. And I was a like, doctor and a great mom. <laughs> yeah, that was great advice. I mean, she, Phyllis is tough. She's an investment banker, grew up in yeah. Germany. So I'd say like, I mean, love her, but her advice, I yeah, take yeah. percent of. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah. Investment bankers are not conducive to burnout away. Yeah, 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 totally. Totally. That was, that was really important advice for me in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, as you, um, as you moved on from that, that role and that, that period of life, what were some of the steps you took that were the most beneficial in terms of early healing? Because I think yeah. a lot of people listening, maybe they're not at the point we were where there's hospitalizations and surgeries and, you know, it's not that maybe, maybe not that extreme, but I know so many people who have autoimmune conditions who have GI issues, right? They're, they're having like 
they're at a seven. We maybe got to a nine, but they're at like a seven. So what yeah. were some of the things that you did that, that were the most helpful other than changing the job, which obviously helped? Yeah. I mean, changing the job, number one, but I also will say that like your body is sending you signals and clues. And if you are experiencing GI issues without explanation or autoimmune flare-ups without explanation, like that is your body crying for help. Yeah. You can continue on, but eventually your body is going to respond in a way that it did for me and did for you. So look at those. Um, I call them like gentle reminders, gentle bodily reminders. If you're at that phase where it's just like some stomach issues and diarrhea, like that's the gentle phase because it gets yeah. so severe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Listen to those clues and recognize that there's probably something that's not in values alignment that you're doing either in your relationship, in your job, something in your life. Um, but once I got, once I left Museum of Ice Cream, I would say one of the first things I began to do that has been radically helpful and something that I think we don't value as much as we show, which was pure accountability. Mm -hmm. So I started to just be honest with people about like, they'd be like, you're killing it. Why did you leave your job? And rather than me being like, oh, it was time. I'm so grateful. I was like, oh man, that job just wasn't right for me. Brutally honest. Yeah. Job was not right for me. Or I, I'm burnt out, man. I'm really struggling. That level of peer accountability and radical honesty to other people is free. Yeah. And it helps you close that cycle of burnout of just, because yeah. guess what happens? 90% of the time people are like, oh my God, I've been there. Yeah. Or they're like, oh, I feel that way about my job. Right? Like that level of vulnerability and looking to other peers and telling the truth about your experience you don't have to talk shit about your boss. You don't have to get into the nitty gritty. Just speak your truth. Yeah. Was step one. Step two was behaviors around my phone. I started putting my phone on airplane mode at night. I still do it to this day. My family knows if they don't hear from me, they don't hear from me before 9 a.m. No matter what. That's probably going to change when I have children. But for now, until there's children and baby was running around, the phone is on airplane mode at 9 a.m. until 9 a.m. So what that meant is it gave me the choice of when I'm starting my day. Mm -hmm. I felt before I had digital boundaries, I'd wake up and it was like, boom, like whatever everyone had sent me had indicated it would really drive my morning. Great news, bad news, notifications of New York Times and Instagram. That all of a sudden, these all these external forces were choosing how my day was going to go. So digital boundaries was is a radical change for me. It was a radical change. Has I still practice them? And I would really encourage people to rewire how they're interacting with their phone. Turn off your Slack notifications if you're still at your employer. Turn off your Instagram notifications. Give yourself the autonomy to choose when you're going to absorb that information. You can open your Instagram and see something that will push you in tears, see something that make you laugh, and you're completely susceptible to what that algorithm in that moment decides for you. Sure, we I would all we would all love to be in a place where we're like above experiencing anything from looking at Instagram. But I would say the number two is digital boundaries. And the third was in having morning a morning routine around self-reflection. Mm. So I actually don't like the word self-care. I think it's really hard to absorb. I don't think people know what it means. I don't really know what it means. Yeah. Morning reflection was big for me. So it started with the gratitude journal, the five-minute gratitude journal. Now I have just like a plain journal that I, yeah. you know. Do your own thing. <laughs> yeah. And I journal before I start meditating. Now I meditate in the mornings. But taking a beat for self-reflection, um, 
How did I sleep? How was yesterday? What am I looking forward to today? Those three things on rotation began that recovery process for me. I love that. And and I um I could literally talk to you about burnout all day long. <laughs> we might have to do another episode that's just about burnout. But before we get to the very end, I want to ask you a question about the creative process. I one of the big parts of my burnout healing, the later stages of my burnout healing was re re tapping into the fact that I am a creative person, even though I'm a businesswoman. Um, we all are creative in our own way. Um, you work as a capital C creative, right? And I'm curious, how do you make intentional time for the creative process? How do you tap into your that creative space that lies within you? So talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, it's a great, you know, it's it's an ongoing journey for me. I've had it's like recently watching that Miles Davis documentary on Netflix and how he like didn't pick up the trumpet for five years. And like, I have had that experience with writing. I was wrote all the time, pro- published articles, and I spent five years not like truly not writing at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've recently picked that back up. But I would say for me, the creative process is rooted in uh, time and space. So I block Thursday mornings for myself, no meetings before one. And I use that as my creative time. And if I get nothing done, fine. If I write one page, fine. If I write 10 pages, amazing. But I realized that like giving myself the freedom to just be creative when it comes, like it's just not going to happen as a businesswoman. Mm-hmm. Like my schedule is never free. People are like, can you meet an hour? I'm like, no. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> are you crazy? I'm like, I would love to have that freedom in a schedule, but I don't have that. And so it's naive for me to think that like, I'm just going to miraculously create this time to finish my book. Yeah. So I started to create structure around it. And I've, you know, I, I have um, Amy Tan who wrote the Joy Luck Club has a ritual that she has before she writes. And I forget what it is, but I remember her saying that like, and my mother-in-law has a ritual. She's uh, wrote like 15 romance novels in the eighties. and was like a huge romance novelist. And she would maniacally listen to this like one classical music album. And what it did drove my fiance crazy as her child, obviously. He's like, oh no, she's like writing again. But she literally had wired her brain that once she pressed play, that duration of two hours was like, her brain knew. She had trained her brain, like, as long as this music is on, I'm writing. With Amy, she like, I think she lights a candle and says a prayer. She does something that's this ritual that she has taught her brain, candles on, we are writing. Hmm. And so I have a ritual. I write a, I light a candle. I listen to this podcast, uh, this podcast called flow state, which is 50 minutes of ambient music and then a 10 minute break. It's like a Pomodoro effect podcast. Mm -hmm. And I put my phone in the other room and, and that's my creative ritual. And it's amazing what the brain does when you, you can train your brain. And again, if you, you can train it and let go of the output. Sometimes nothing comes out. Sometimes I do all the right things and the rituals began and I'm like, Anyone? <laughs> Bueller? Yeah. yeah Bueller. And then there's times where I'm like, I'm brilliant. Damn. That <laughs> seller on its way. So the ritual, ritual and time. Ritual what and I, time. What I love about that so much is that anyone can do this, right? Even if there's a small window of time, right? It, it, yes, there are aspects of the creative process that involve just like natural talent and brilliance and luck and all those things. But time and ritual is like you can do that no matter what you do, uh, no matter you know how much time you have. So, all right, 
I want to go into our our little rapid fire questions before we wrap up. Um, so what is one tip that you have for working smart? Oh, one tip I have for working smart. Um, I call it the 48 hour rule, which is you get 48 hours to be bummed that you didn't do what you needed to do and or you get 48 hours to celebrate what you did and you got to move on. Working smart it's not spending any time in the super highs and the super lows, trying to stay as focused and stable as possible to me is working smart. Amazing. What about one tip for working happy? Working happy. Oh, I love that. Um, I just think it's uh, what I, I say this all the time as well, which is like reminding yourself that even in your darkest days, this is a Sam Harris quote, that there are 1 billion people who would trade places with you. Mm. Without, without a second head of hesitation. You're Isn't dark. that the truth? I think we all know that. Um, yeah, we all know that. And that's such great perspective. Such great perspective. They In your darkest moment, in a blink of an eye, a billion people in this world will trade places with you. Working happy to mean means remembering that and just being like, wow, I'm grateful. Yeah. And if you can hold gratitude, even in the darkest days, happiness will prevail. Mm teaching us over here. <laughs> um, all right. Where can our listeners find you if they want to follow you, know more about you? Yeah. Um, Instagram, madison.utendahl. Uh, I'm in a bit of an Instagram hiatus right now. I'm again, practicing my digital boundaries, yeah. finding other ways in the world to be vocal, uh, to be an ally, to be an activist. Um, I am reminded over and over again that until the past, what, 10 years, Activist and allyship required leaving your house and actually doing something. So true. So what does that mean for me now? And so I'm really yeah. trying to find myself with that. Um, and so I'm not really online much at this moment, but most of the time I am. Most of the time yeah. Instagram and LinkedIn, I'm a pretty steady, steady participant. Amazing. Well, Madison, thank you so much. As I mentioned, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to do at least something again where we're talking more yeah. about this uh burnout and and uh in the workplace stuff. But thank you so much. And I can't wait to hear this episode with our community. All right, bye Madison. Bye, see you soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Full Plate Full Cup. If you found this episode helpful, please make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and share it with a friend. To learn more about the Full Plate Full Cup methodology or to work with us in a more personal way, find us on Instagram at Full Plate Full Cup. That's at F-U-L-L-P-L-A-T-E-F-U-L-L-C-U-P or online at www.fullplatefullcup.com. www.fullplatefullcup.com.